I'm not her. <laughs> I'm Peter Guthridge. Welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival. I'm delighted to be uh, presenting uh, this evening one of the major events of the Book Festival. Uh, Lionel Shriver, the Orange Prize winner, is here to talk about her new book, The Post-Birthday World. She's going to read from it, talk about it, give you an opportunity to ask questions about it, and then sign copies of it back in the uh, book tent. Please welcome Lionel Shriver. I'm doing my own market survey, so I'm just a little curious. How many people in this audience have read We Need to Talk About Kevin? <laughs> and it looks like a Jane Fonda routine out there. Um, well, I don't know whether this is going to come as a disappointment or a relief, but the post-birthday world is very different. It's also a little more cheerful than Kevin, which isn't saying much. It's about a woman named Irina McGovern. She's in her early 40s. She's a children's book illustrator. And she's been living for almost 10 years with a man named Lawrence Trainer, who, like her, is also an American. But they live in London. Lawrence works for a think tank. He um, uh, has a sense of humor and regular life, but his work is very serious. And um, Irina and Lawrence have been, as far as she's concerned, uh, perfectly happy. And she thinks that she has found the man that she's going to stay with for the rest of her life, which is always a dangerous assumption. <laughs> well, for years now, they have been getting together with another couple uh, once or twice a year, a writer with whom Irina has collaborated on children's books, and her husband, who is, of all things, a professional snooker player. And uh, they've usually got together on uh, this snooker player's birthday. His name is Ramsey Acton, and his wife's name is Jude. Um, unfortunately, when Ramsey's birthday comes around um, this year, things are different. Lawrence is away at a conference in Sarajevo. Uh, and Ramsey and Jude have split up, so they're divorced. If Irina is going to keep up the tradition of getting together with Ramsey on his birthday, then she's going to have to do it just the two of them. And this prospect makes her unaccountably uneasy. In fact, frankly, Ramsey has always made her uneasy, and she's never quite put her finger on why. Though, frankly, that means she hasn't thought very hard. Um, she does reluctantly concede to get together with him, and she dreads it. She figures, what does she have to do to say to a snooker player? She figures they're not going to have anything to talk about. Um, but lo and behold, when they do go out to dinner, they have a wonderful time. For someone who considers herself perfectly happy, they have too wonderful a time. And at the end of the evening, what she doesn't really want to be over, Ramsey invites her back to his house. And she kind of knows she shouldn't do this. But, you know, cat's away. <laughs> 
So she says yes. She goes back to his house and they go down to his basement snooker hall where, typical man, he starts shooting practice frames one after another and proceeds to completely ignore her. Well, as she's sitting, sipping her cognac, and she did have a couple of drags on a marijuana cigarette, um, something starts to happen. And little by little, she begins to realize that she is dying to kiss him. I may not have mentioned this, but unlike most snooker players, Ramsey's rather attractive. <laughs> Well, um, Irina registers a number of things at once. Um, one of them is that Ramsey may be from a profession full of rakes, but Ramsey himself is a nice guy. And he's friends with her partner, Lawrence. And he's not about to make a move on her, even though she does suspect that he is rather attracted to her. If anyone is going to make a move on anyone, she is going to have to kiss him. Now, there are a lot of people who would take these moments casually there are even couples, though I've never met them, who um, seem to have arrangements whereby they can do this sort of thing and it's just a little titter the next morning. But Irina has always taken her commitment to Lawrence seriously, in spite of the fact they've never married. She feels they are married in all but name. As so many people are who live together, especially for almost a decade. So for her, this is a real crossroads. And she knows that the decision she makes will probably have implications for her life. And she's right. So you come to the end of the first chapter. And she's, she uh, goes unsteadily up to the snooker table where he has promised to teach her how to shoot this, the cue. And, uh, she leans over and says, I almost forgot. Happy birthday. And you don't know what she does. And you turn the page, it's the next night. Lawrence is coming home from Sarajevo, and as soon as he opens the door, she feels absolutely nothing. They, they're the ones who can't carry a conversation. The evening is awful. They end up watching TV. And obviously she kissed Ramsey Acton. <laughs> and everything is ruined. She realized that she has, in a stroke, destroyed the trust between her and her partner. It's amazing how fast you can do that. And uh, she kicks herself when she's going to sleep and she says to to herself, you know, I've taken the consequences for everything I have ever done in my life, and you know we all do, you don't have any choice. Can't I just this once turn back the clock? You know, just 24 hours. Well, in real life, uh, you don't get to turn back the clock, not one minute, much less 24 hours, but Arena has the author on her side, <laughs> and you turn the page, and it's chapter two again. And Lawrence is coming in the door. She is delighted to see him. They have a wonderful evening, and everything is fine. She didn't kiss Ramsey Acton. 
Well, that's the structure of the whole book. You have two chapter twos, two chapter threes, etc. You can figure it out. Yet one closing chapter, which finishes both stories. And it's an, an examination not just of the implications of a single choice, because if, if Irina kisses Ramsey, she ends up with him. It may have been just a kiss, but it was a very good kiss. But it's also meant to be an examination of what difference it makes, whom we choose to love. How does it affect our lives? How does it change our friendships and our relationships with our family? How does it affect our career? But in the process, I was also um, looking at, uh, it in the side of the story that Irina leaves Lawrence, uh, what, what does it feel like to betray? In fact, one of, the, one of the theses of the book is that it may be just as painful to do the betraying as to be betrayed certainly if you have a heart. And so what I wanted to read you this evening is a scene early on, Irina has been sneaking around, seeing Ramsey on the sly. And pretty finally she's getting to the point, and any woman understands this, right? You have to tell someone. <laughs> so she gets together with one of her best friends. She's exploding with this secret that she can't stand keeping. And this used to be uh, her editor uh, when she worked with Jude, but they, they don't have a professional relationship anymore. So you can feel in this uh, interchange that there's that little residue of that hierarchical relationship that you always have with someone you've worked for. This is also a scene that demonstrates that um, never ask for advice unless you're prepared to take it. You said you had something to talk to me about, and this had better be not just another girly mope about Princess Di. The Merlot banged on the table next to Irina Zinfandel. For a schlep all the way out to the East End, I expect nothing short of scandal. For some people, keeping secrets was invigorating. But for Irina, they were combustible. By September, she was about to explode. Absent a therapist, the next best thing was plain-speaking Betsy Philpott. They'd arranged to meet at Best of India, a hole in the wall on Roman Road. Betsy and Leo lived in Ealing, well west. And Betsy had resisted traveling across the whole of London with five Indian restaurants in her own neighborhood. But Irina insisted that Best of India served distinctive dishes at reasonable prices. It lacked a liquor license, but didn't charge a corking fee. Glad to save a few quid on wine, Betsy had relented. Besides, like most excellent company, Betsy was a gossip and would have met Irina in Siberia if she had something to talk about. With the conventional obsequiousness of Indian waiters, a thin cover for contempt, the Asian uncorked the zin, then presented their poppadums and condiment tray with a flourish. Rena made a mental note to avoid the raw onion relish. Well, out with it, 
said Betsy. Life's short and tonight's shorter. Irina hesitated. Obviously, it was dangerous to spill the beans to anyone who was friends with Lawrence as well. But to release the story into the world was also to relinquish sole proprietorship. When you let other people in on your business, you allowed them to have cavalier opinions about it. You might as well hand guests your prized original Monet miniature for a coffee coaster. Two, the moment she opened her mouth, her transgressions would become a matter of public record. Any prospective retreat would leave a slime trail. You're not going to approve, said Irina. I'm your judge and jury. You can be moralistic. Though Betsy hadn't been Arena's editor for years, a shadow of hierarchy remained. Betsy wouldn't live in any fear of Arena's opinion of her. Excuse me. I didn't realize this was going to be a critique of my character. It isn't. Arena took a slug of wine. I'm sorry. I shouldn't start defending myself against all the mean things you're going to say when you haven't even said them yet. My guess is you've been saying the mean things about yourself. You're right there. Vile things. Another slug. Anyway, back in July, something happened to me. You know how when you're in the gym and you have to do your sit-ups and you go for water and retie your shoes? Putting it off never makes it any easier. Crumbling her poppadom, Arena couldn't look Betsy in the eye. I met someone. We known each other for years, but only met met this one night. No matter how she told it, the tale sounded cheap. I seem to have fallen in love with him. I thought you were in love, said Stern, Betsy sternly. Her own congenial marriage had the dynamic of a corporate partnership. And Betsy had more than one expressed a wistful envy of Irina's conspicuously warmer tie. I did too, said Irina dejectedly. And now, in a dime, I feel nothing for Lawrence, or nothing but pity. I feel like a monster. Since when do you smoke? Irina's British friends would have cadged one. But Betsy was a fellow Yank. And rather than slip out a packet of Galois, Irina might as well have tabled a baggie of white powder, a used syringe, and a spoon. It's only occasional. Irina tried to direct the smoke away from Betsy's face, but the circulation system blew it back again. Don't tell Lawrence. He'd have a cow. I bet he knows. Oh, I do the whole breath mint thing, but yeah, probably. Oh, he definitely knows about the ciggies. But you have bigger problems to fry. I mean, I bet he knows you're having an affair. Irina looked up sharply. I'm not. Betsy examined her skeptically. This is a platonic infatuation. 
You go to museums and work yourselves into ecstasies over a painting. <laughs> I've never been sure what platonic means exactly. We, uh, <laughs> it's physical, all right. But we haven't um, sealed the deal. I thought that was important. She was not at all that sure that that was important. Restraint has an eroticism of its own, and the agony of foregoing sexual closure had for weeks achieved a sweetness that bordered on rapture. If this was loyalty, what in God's name was betrayal? Has the nooky side of things been so bad with Lawrence? Fallen off? Bad? <laughs> it's never been bad with Lawrence. We probably, or we used to until recently, have sex three or four times a week. But it's strangely impersonal. Three or four times a week and you're complaining? Leo and I fuck about as often as we rotate our mattress. <laughs> I never know what's going on in his head. Why don't you ask him? I'm too afraid he'll ask me what's going on in mine. Which is? The waiter arrived and arena colored. The Asian surely assumed that loose Western floozies routinely conducted just this sort of seedy discussion over popdoms. I think about someone else, she mumbled once he'd taken their orders. It started out as a last resort, and now it's a, an entrenched bad habit. If I don't summon a certain uh, other party in my head, I can't finish the job. This other party, what does he do for a living? If I tell you, you'll know who he is. You're planning to get through a lamb korma, a chicken vindaloo, and a side order of spinach and chickpeas without telling me the guy's name? Irina stirred a shard in the coriander chutney. You'll think I'm nuts. You're projecting again. You think you're nuts. It's not that crazy. On the face of it, there's no reason that a children's book illustrator would have a whole lot in common with a think tank research fellow either. What? Is this guy some working class gardener or something? He wishes he were working class, but he has plenty of money. Look, I'm not going to play 20 questions here. Irina shook her head. If we ever go public, Jude is sure to think we were running around behind her back while they were still married. We weren't. Ramsey Acton? <laughs> said Betsy with incredulity. I'll give you this. He is good looking. I hadn't even noticed he was handsome until Recently, or only abstractly, this entire country has noticed your boyfriend's good-looking as of the 1970s. Their food arrived, and Irina helped herself to a tiny spoonful of each dish, which puddled in disagreeable pools of red oil on her plate. You know, you've lost weight. 
The observation carried a hint of resentment. Betsy, as they say, was big-boned, <laughs> though she was pretty, and Irina had never figured out how to tell her that. It's okay for now. You look hot as the blazes, frankly. But don't overdo it. Lose any more and you'll get waif-like. I'm not on a diet. I just can't eat. You're on the love diet. <laughs> Worth 10 pounds. But don't worry. You're, you'll put it back on on the closing end. Who says there's going to be an end? Arena, get real. You are not going to run off with Ramsey Acton. Jude made that mistake. Learn from it. Get him out of your system. For that matter, if you're telling me the truth. Maybe you should get it over with and fuck the bastard. Stop building it up into such a big deal and find out one more time that fucking is fucking. On this score, most men are fungible. Then patch things up with Lawrence. As for whether you tell him about it and have a big cry or shove it under the carpet like a grown-up, that's your call. But Ramsey is not a long-term prospect. Why not? <laughs> for starters, take what you said about money. Sure, Ramsey's made a lot of it. But according to Jude, it's all very easy come. There's a corollary. She couldn't believe how little there was to filch when they divorced. She got a house in Spain. Out of millions. I don't know how much you know about snooker, but these boys make do re mi hand over fist when they're on a roll. Why isn't there more of it left? I'm not only talking about finance, but temperament. You go all the way to Roman Road so you can bring in your own bottle of red. You're frugal. Ramsey is not frugal. It could do me good to learn to splurge a little. It has done me good. Did you ever talk to Jude what it about what it was like to live with a snooker player? Some, said Arena defensively. She moaned a lot, but she was prone to. As Ramsey says, she's chronically dissatisfied. They were a bad match. And you're a good one? Go on the road with them and you're stuck in hotel rooms playing with the tea machine. But they don't want you to go on the road, not really. They like to play hard away from the table, too. And stay home. You're a widow for the season, sitting there wondering how much he's drinking, what's up his nose, and who's sidling next to him at the bar. That's a cliché. They always come from somewhere. Ramsey's different. Famous last words. Irina sulked over her spinach and threw back another defiant gulp of wine. When the waiter silently opened the second bottle, she sensed his disapproval. But Betsy wasn't finished. If you're seriously contemplating a future with this character, can we talk turkey? Ramsey's what, 50? He's only 47. Big diff. 47 in snooker is like 95 for everybody else. 
Ramsey says that when he started out, plenty of snooker players were only reaching their prime by their 40s. Times have changed. The superstars are all in their 20s. Ramsey's slipping. You can count on the fact that he'll keep slipping, too. Maybe it's eyesight or steadiness of hand or just starting to get burnout on despite himself, but he'll never get back to where he was. He's never quite won the world's championship, and he has no snowballs of winning it now. The point is, you're getting the guy at the tail end. It's not the fun bit. Sometime soon, he'll be forced to retire, and unless he's willing to publicly humiliate himself. Snooker's his whole life, as far as I can tell. Retirement's not going to be pretty. When I picture it, cognac and long afternoon naps feature prominently. They almost always take up golf. Oh, great. <laughs> Betsy <laughs> heaped another spoonful on the, of the neglected lamb onto her plate, eyeing Arena askance when she poured another glass of wine. Listen, you must be having a rough time. But before you do anything hasty, try to be practical. Jude says he's neurotic. She's one to talk. I just wanted you to walk in with your eyes open. She says he's a hypochondriac, that he's superstitious and touchy, especially about anything to do with his snooker game. Expect snooker, snooker, snooker. You better like it. I do like it, said Arena. Increasingly. Increasingly means you didn't give a shit about it before. But I get the feeling it's not fascination with snooker that's driving this thing. All right. No. Irina had never tried to put it into words and had a dismal presentiment that any attempt to do so would prove humiliating. Nevertheless, she'd give it a go. Every time he touches me, I think I could die. I could die right at that moment, and I'd leave this earth in a state of grace. And everything fits. No matter how we sit next to each other, it's always comfortable. The smell of his skin makes me high. Really, breathing at the base of his neck is like sniffing glue. Slightly sweet and musky at the same time, like one of those complex reduction sauces you get in upscale restaurants, which somehow manages to be both intense and delicate, and you can never quite figure out what's in it. And kissing him, I should be embarrassed to say this, but sometimes it makes me cry. My dear, said Betsy, clearly unmoved. <laughs> Boy, was that speech a waste of time. <laughs> it's called sex. That's a belittling word. What I'm talking about isn't little. It's, it's everything. It isn't everything, though it seems that way when you're drunk on it. Eventually, the smoke clears, and there you are with this guy downstairs hitting little red balls into pockets the whole day through, and you wonder how you got here. 
You think it doesn't last. Of course it doesn't last, Betsy scoffed. Didn't you go through something like this with Lawrence? Sort of. Maybe. Not as extreme. I don't know. It's hard to remember. It's no longer convenient to remember. Didn't you two go at it hot and heavy for a few months, or you wouldn't have moved in together? Yes, I guess. This seems different. It seems different, because right now you're up to your neck in it. And meanwhile, there are these traffic bollards in your head to keep you from getting at what it was like in the olden days with Lawrence. My money says it wasn't different at all. You think everyone goes around in the same cycle. You get all very giddy and infatuated at the beginning. And then inevitably the fire dies down to sorry little embers. So in no, no time I'll be having mechanical, impersonal relations with Ramsey three times a week instead of with Lawrence. If you're lucky. <laughs> I refuse to accept that. Then you'll find out the hard way, Cookie. Betsy's eyes sharpened when they caught Arena glancing surreptitiously at her watch. I'll stand behi behind you, whatever you do, because you're my friend. And I promise I won't say this again. Still, I'd feel remiss if I didn't at least say it once. Lawrence may not be God's gift to womankind, but uh, don't laugh, this is not important. He is a good provider. He's solid. And I'm pretty sure he loves you all, like all get out, whether or not he's always able to show it. He's the kind of man you'd want around in a flood or an earthquake or when some hood is breaking into your house. Icing on the cake, he's a caustic, irreverent son of a bitch, and I like him. I'm not saying that a girl doesn't got to do what a girl's got to do. Just because if you leave him, you'll break his heart, doesn't mean you shouldn't follow your nose, literally, from the sound of it. But I think you'd miss him. And in the other event, wouldn't I miss Ramsey? I don't doubt that cutting this thing off right now would probably feel like hacking off your arm. But it would grow back. You've been with Lawrence, what, ten years? Close, said Arena absently. That's like a bank account, steadily accruing interest. You are frugal. Don't shoot your wad. You could blow your savings on some fancy, shiny gadget. And then when it jams, you'll be stuck with this glorified paperweight in your bed. And you'll be broke. It wasn't nice, but Arena was no longer paying attention, and she asked for the bill. That's what happens when people give you advice that you don't care to take. Their voices go tinny and mincing, like a radio playing in another room. Betsy folded her arms. Doesn't Ramsey live just a few blocks from here? Yes, as a matter of fact, Irina stirred her pocketbook for her wallet. 
Next question. Betsy's eyes were flinty. Are you or are you not walking back with me to the Mile End Tube? I might take a cab. Swell. We can share one. Burrow's not on your way. I don't mind the ride. Oh, stop it. Yes, if you must know, I am. We hardly ever get to see each other in the evening. I won't have long, either. Did you really want to see me tonight? Or am I just a beard? Yes, I really wanted to see you. Can't you tell? Two birds, one stone is all. So you dragged me all the way out to the East End. I'm sorry about that. I have warm associations with this place. We, uh, well, the management isn't into snooker, so they don't know who he is. And I do like the food. That's funny. You didn't eat any. I told you my appetite is, is crap. If Lawrence asked me when we wrap things up here, I'll have to tell him. You won't ask. This was true, but there was something sad about that. Irina tried to treat her friend, but Betsy was having none of it, as if refusing to be bought off. They split the bill. Walking down Roman Road, they said nothing. At Grove, where Betsy would turn left and Irina right, Betsy faced her. I don't like to be used, Irina. I'm sorry. She was fighting tears. It won't happen again, I promise. You've got to talk to Lawrence. I know, but lately we can't seem to talk about anything. I wonder why that would be. He's such a purist about loyalty. If I ever allowed that I'd been attracted to someone else, he'll slam the door in my face and I'd destroy his friendship with Ramsay. I don't think I can say anything without being sure what I want to do. Lawrence is a good man, Irina. They're thin on the ground. Think twice. And the rest of the hour is up to you. I've done my bit. When is your next book? Oh, you are greedy. <laughs> Did you hear that? When is my next book? She's already read this. That's what my editor wants to know. Um, if I stop doing literary festivals, <laughs> then, then, yeah, I'll get to work. If it, if it helps, it's due November next. And I don't prefer to go into great detail about new projects because, you know, it's always dangerous to talk out your enthusiasm and then you never get around to the real thing. But it is, um, it's a, 
It's about illness and death, another cheerful. <laughs> and and uh, what happens to a couple of families who get caught up in American health care, which I wouldn't wish on anybody. In the front. I'm sure you've answered this a million times before, but I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, why are you called Lionel? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> You know, next time someone asks me that, I'm going to bust into tears. <laughs> the simplest and truest answer to that is that I hated my given name. I just hated it. I never identified with it, and I kept taking aliases through my whole childhood. By the time I was 15, my family moved cities, and I knew that was my opportunity. And that's when I seized upon Lionel with it's completely arbitrary. I just like the sound of it. And I stuck with it because I knew that that was the only way I was going to chuck Margaret Ann. <laughs> Back there. Oh, hello. Um, <laughs> are you more of a Lawrence person or a Ramsey person? Hmm. Well, that's the question the whole book asks. And it's a, it's a, it was keeping the novel and my own affections balanced, which was a lot of the art of the book. Um, because there's, there's a lot wrong with both these guys. In other words, they're like real people or at least like real men. <laughs> I went with Ramsey in my real life, but I would also suggest that, I mean, that I think if, if you stick them out, Ramsey's often slide into Lawrence's. If, to me, these have become um, shorthand terms. For those of you who haven't read the book, Lawrence is the more of the steady state relationship. He's a, you know, they have a very routinized life. Um, it's affectionate, but it's not passionate. So as you'd notice, I mean, you know, there's a lot of deep warmth in there, but uh, it's it's more like this ongoing thing. You're best friends. I think you'd all recognize that relationship if not have it. In fact, I think most lasting relationships are Lawrence relationships. Um, but the Ramsey thing is much more overtly passionate. They fight all the time. He drinks. Um, they have big, you know, fallings out and makings up. And it's much more what fiction and the movies have generally promoted as, the, as a real romantic relationship. That's, that's what it is. You know, that's what you, you want to watch. And the Lawrence thing is sometimes dismissed as boring. And that, um, when reviewers refer to Lawrence as boring, it always hurts my feelings. Because I think that the biggest, one of the biggest achievements of this novel is to give that kind of a relationship credit and to try to express some of what I believe is, is some of the real poetry of that kind of relationship. It's, it's, on a, it's quiet, but it doesn't mean that it's not beautiful. Um, 
Um, I believe that uh, you've written two books that have a kind of sporting theme to mm, them. Yes. And I just wondered if the kind of competitive element of sport was one of the themes that you really like to explore. Uh, I like, I, I guess I'm very interested in the one-on-one so that I find that the sports that I'm attracted to, tennis, snooker, uh, I don't even like doubles tennis, <laughs> right? And I like that inti- intensity. Um, it's not that, s- that the, the sports that I have used are necessarily just meant to be metaphors. They're meant more meant to be theaters. You know, uh, it gives form to a to, to contest. And I guess I have been very involved in, in that contest, and especially the contest between men and women, uh, and the tragedy of the way that relationships degenerate into contests when that's not what they really should be, which is what Double Fault is all about. Um, I enjoy the way sport tests character, and it's within, it's within that very carefully constructed theater but it doesn't mean that the variation, even though it, it's, it's got a rigid form, the variations within that rigid form are infinite. And, I, and that's really fun. And I, I enjoy writing scenes which play with the ebb and flow of winning and losing, which has been one of the great dramas of my life. And so that's just fun. Now, am I, I've already used up the two sports that I care about. So. <laughs> I'm either going to have to get some new enthusiasms, or that's it. <laughs> Maybe back. Well, hold, hold, hold it. Right over here. Your use of language intrigued and puzzled me a little bit. You used words which seemed rather old-fashioned, like erstwhile and berated, <laughs> and then you had Ramsey doing this sort of nothing stuff. Can you no, don't transliterate. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Well, I don't use a deliberately uh, antiquated style. Um, erstwhile, well, sometimes you just don't want to say former again. I like, adjudi- I like synonyms. Uh, berated, I wouldn't consider an especially uh, old-fashioned word, but I guess on the on point of g- vocabulary in general, I like to keep a fairly large palette. I do think that we tend to um, you write and 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 use too narrow uh, too narrow a spectrum. And one of the bothersome things about that is not only does that limit our ability to express ourselves and also to avail ourselves of the richness of the English language, um, but it it also means that you create a standard. What sounds normal is that narrow palette. In other words, you start hemming everybody in because if you don't use these words, then they sound weird and they sound pretentious. And I, I, I think it's, it's the duty of writers to exercise the language so that it feels current and fresh. Like I can say berated and you don't think that, that, that I'm hail from 1935. Um, that, you know, this language belongs to us and 
if, if we keep all these words current, uh, then they don't sound weird, and they don't sound like big words, and they don't sound like old words. Uh, I don't go, s I mean, we could talk for hours on this issue because I have a lot of opinions. I don't go so far as to, I hope, sound like a thesaurus junkie. And um, Annie Proulx does that a little bit. She clearly just trolls that thing. You know, she keeps a dictionary underneath her pillow. And it's, uh, it's t and this is a taste thing, uh, because she's written some very fine things. But I don't like it to be going so far that I'm having, you know, the vocabulary shoved up in my face all the time. But the thing is that I grew up with parents who were very well-spoken and well-educated, and so they used that large palette. And so I was exposed, that was doing me a huge favor as, as a writer and as a person. So that I like to use that language and it doesn't sound weird to me because that's what I grew up listening to. Hi, um, I was just wondering if we could talk about Kevin, if that's okay. Um, I um, won't hit you. That's fine. No, I, well, it's about your new book as well. Also, I was I was very interested in reading the book in that um, Kevin gave great comfort to childless women in their forties mm. and was very confrontational to mothers. So mm -hmm. that's been my experience of folks who've read it. And so I wondered if you wanted to say something about, but also who who will get comfort from your new book and who will be confronted by it? Hmm. Uh, first, on Kevin. What's been interesting to me is that while I've heard from a lot of uh, women in their 40s, as you say, that have been um, consoled by this uh, story of motherhood gone wrong, that clearly uh, they haven't had kids and they made the right decision, which is fine by me. <laughs> I've actually, though, I've talked to a lot of mothers who have, have got a lot out of that book, partly because, well, for one thing, it, it sometimes highlights how, how well their lives have gone. <laughs> um, but also it's just been um, on that lower level of not your kid becomes a killer, but the little stuff that goes wrong, the, the trials of Eva's life um, when Kevin is younger. That's been a relief for a lot of parents, not just mothers, but parents to read a version of parenthood that isn't romanticizing it. And um, that's not to say that these are parents that wish they hadn't had their children, but it's been hard. And I think for most people, at one time or another, it's, it's, it's hard. And it's nice to see that represented in fiction because fiction and film has tended to look at parenthood through rose-colored glasses. And, and the kids are occasionally a little naughty, but they never really do anything terrible. And mostly they sit around the dinner table saying, wise, wonderful things. And it, that's just not what it's all about. So I've, I've got some from gratitude from parents as well as, as non-parents. Um, as for the new book, what, who's going to find comfort in it and who's going to find it confronting? I think um, anybody who has had to choose between more than one partner will find this comforting because there's a way in which when you find out what happens with each of the men that she goes with, there's a price to pay for each one of them. And it's really hard to say with whom she's better off. And while it's not a book that's advocating that it's not important at all whom we choose, 
in some ways it's saying, you know, just choose somebody because you're going to pay a price for whomever you pick. <laughs> and you're not going to know what that price is. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's what I, I would call it an anti-courtly love book. That is, it is, that's not Courtney love. I didn't want her to take offense. <laughs> you know, the courtly love thing is that, oh, there's one person out there just waiting for you, and you just have to hang around and, and cross the street at the right moment, and then you're going to run into them, and then you'll be happy for the rest of your life. And when you don't end up crossing the street at the right time, that can be a very depressing paradigm. And so I guess I don't believe that there is only one person for you, though I believe that that person, whomever you choose, will have an influence on your life across the board. Sometimes rather subtle, sometimes dramatic. But uh, I think you can make a life with more than one person. And I, I don't think that's cynical. I think that's comforting. I think that's a relief. So uh, some people are going to find that pragmatism cynical and that's going to be confronting, you know, because it's not exactly a happy ending. Not, I don't want to give it away, but uh, it's not a fairy tale. But at the same time, I think it, 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 it offers some hope because it's, it's just as I was trying to tell the story of Kevin on, on a realistic level, talk about parenthood in, in the way it, it really is then I was trying to do s the same thing with romantic love. And, you know, I think we're all sometimes suspicious that everyone else around us is having these wild, passionate, romantic relationships with, with you know, this wild sex, and it's so great. And, and yet our partners and I sit around uh, watching TV. What's wrong with us? <laughs> and I, I, I think it's, it's comforting to realize that that's, that's what it's like wh for a lot of people. And it's not so bad. You right here? I'm really interested in the mechanics of writing the post-birthday world, um, because really, it, in some ways, it's two books sort of glued together down yeah. the spine. Mm -hmm. Did you sit down and write one story straight through? Or like the reader, did you alternate? I alternated because I wanted to experience the book the way my reader would experience the book. But, you know, it's funny because I heard from somebody in, um, I think it was in Australia, and she said, she got really involved, rather to my surprise, since it's the quieter side of the book, with the Lawrence um, universe. And she just wanted to find out what happened. So she started reading every other chapter. <laughs> And then I gather went back and read the Ramsey chapters. <laughs> and I said, well, God, I, I'm, does it work? <laughs> she said, yeah. I was really surprised. But apparently you can't. And I've never done that myself. But apparently that, that it, it's, it, it, it works. So, but for me, it worked. I, I wanted to be in, I always write my books in the order in which I expect them to be read. And, and a lot of what makes this book work is the interaction between the two chapters, uh, the little things that you pick up in one 
the lines that are repeated. And so I wanted to have the last chapter in my mind in the same way that I wanted in your mind. That's why I laid it out that way instead of telling the stories in sequence. Down here? If it's any comfort, um, I can attest to the fact that many students who have read War and Peace have actually only read Peace. <laughs> um, my question for you is that it, you wait, Irina waits until uh, Jude has moved out of the picture before coming into play, as it were. Um, is this yet another anti-courtly love, that this is a, you know, things happen at as they happen if you're in the right place at the right time, that sort of thing, that it's if, um, what, is there a possibility in your mind that those characters <coughs> could have had a relationship if Jude were not already gone? In making sure that at least Ramsey was available, divorced, uh, I was making sure that I wasn't creating just too much of a soap opera, and I was also protecting my characters and from your, the reader's, harsh judgment. That is, it's hard enough to forgive Irina in, in the side of the book that she leaves Lawrence for walking out on a guy who really doesn't deserve it. And I don't know how, if any of you have had that experience of walking out on somebody who doesn't deserve it, but it's very unpleasant. Um, and one of the things that makes it so unpleasant is, is the way in which you feel that other people judge you harshly and the way you judge yourself harshly. One of the things that was interesting about this book is, uh, is my growing awareness that I had to be careful because um, readers can be very judgmental and, and, and old-fashioned. And so having her not have married Lawrence, for example, made it a little bit easier to forgive her for leaving him. And I did do that on purpose. Uh, I've been surprised how, how old-fashioned readers can be in terms of taking marriage seriously and also betrayal. Look, we, it, it's, a big, it's still a big deal. So, you know, if she had a, an affair with Ramsey and he was still married to the woman that she was writing, collaborating with on children's book, it would be sorted. And it's sorted enough. So, yeah. I, I got that out of the way. There's someone over here. Didn't you want to ask something and then I... <laughs> I'm sorry, I called on you and then I ignored you and it wasn't nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, somebody partly touched on it, but I am interested in this issue. Um, I'm somebody who's chosen not to have children mm -hmm. and I know just how that can wind people up. Um, but your book, very controversially, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, starts with a, a woman who's had children, and, or one child in particular, and says that she regrets it, which yeah. I do seem to remember unleashed quite a lot of controversy. I was just interested in your take on why that seems to arouse such you know, tremendous passions and, and, and controversy in society. Well, I think one of the reasons is demographic. Uh, demo demography is one of my favorite subjects. I'm a little amateur demographer. And, um, you know, for some time, women like you haven't 
and like me, <laughs> I can't put it on you, haven't been having children, and the general uh, birth rate uh, is below replacement. So this has become gradually a serious social issue. I think that's one of the reasons that we're talking about it. You know, all that stuff you read about the aging population, that's because of you and me. That's what it's all about. We did that. So we're going to get old, and we didn't have children to support us in our old age. Right. So, and, and this is causing huge problems. Uh, and I think that it's, it's been really interesting to me to watch movies, for example, change. Uh, it used to be that you could have an abortion in movies, and you can't do it anymore. It's absolutely taboo in Hollywood. And furthermore, for example, there a couple, couple of movies I watched this summer. Um, one of them knocked up on the other waitress, both of them, about women who um, didn't especially want to ha get pregnant uh, and go ahead and have the kid. That's the new form. It's a very pro, and I don't think that these people realize that they're working for the government, but, <laughs> but they really are. Because the whole, so, whole society has become aggressively pro, what's called pronatalist, right? Because women are not having enough children, and it's, and it's, it's a problem. You know, it's an, it's an economic and a social problem. Lionel, I'm sorry. I know you'd like to keep answering questions for a long time, but unfortunately we're out of time. I know you've got many questions to ask. Uh, Lionel is going to be signing copies of her books in, this, in the uh, bookshop next door. I'm sure she'll be happy to an answer questions there. Thank you for coming along and being such an attentive audience. Please thank Lionel Schreiber. Thank you.